turn to Jonah chapter 3, just over halfway through our series in Jonah for uh, these past uh, couple of months. We have uh, two more. Chapter 3, our scripture this morning is uh, verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help now, that you would help us to stand upon every promise of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just one year ago this week, I stood along with my wife, my oldest daughter, and several high school students on the Gore Range Scenic Overlook just off of Trail Ridge Road in Colorado, 12,000 feet in elevation, and we were enjoying one of the most stunning views in all of the Rocky Mountain National Park. We could see the top of Long's Peak, the tallest mountain in the park. It stood looking down at us from 15 miles away to the southeast. We could see the the snow-topped peaks of what are known as the Never Summer Mountain Peaks, those uh, mountain peaks that have snow uh, on them all year long. We were so high up that it was difficult to imagine just how long it would take for you to stop falling if uh, you happened to slip and and fall over the edge of uh, one of the cliffs. And at the same time, it was daunting to think about how long it would take if you attempted to climb up one of those mountain peaks, even though we were already 12,000 feet up. And it's moments like that which make you feel just just how small you are and how big God must be. As Jonah declared in chapter 1 and verse 9, he said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the Lord who made all of it, the whole world and everything in it. If you meditate for any amount of time on how big, mighty, and powerful God would have to be to make what I and and all of those uh, with me observed last year on the Gore Range Scenic Overlook, it would put the fear of God into you. It would truly humble you. And the Word of God also humbles us. 
For the word of the Lord tells us in Romans chapter 2 that this great and awesome God who, who set all those mountains in their places will render to each one according to his works. It goes on to say, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. So when you meditate on how big God is, to be able to set this world and, and all worlds and the stars in their places, and then you add to that the truth that his wrath and fury will pour out on all those who have been self-seeking and have not obeyed the truth, but have followed in the way of unrighteousness, well, that should leave us trembling. That should leave us trembling like someone who is scared of heights being forced to walk along the edge of a 1,000-foot cliff. So at the beginning of this message, I want you to, to consider, do you take God seriously? Do you take God seriously? Do you think about what it really means to be under his judgment? To be under his condemnation? Because you have sinned against him. Have you really considered what it means for you to be self-seeking in how you have lived your life? Doing, doing whatever you have wanted to do rather than what God has commanded you to do. Not many people consider that. Not many people think about that. And that's why the book of Jonah is so remarkable and should be so convicting for us, a convicting example for us about how to respond to the word of the Lord. For we are shown here what happens when sinners like us do something that is very rare indeed, that is, actually respond to the word of the Lord with humility and repentance. So our main theme for this passage from Jonah, 6, Jonah 3, verses 6 through 10, is that God is merciful towards those who forsake their pride and genuinely repent. God is merciful towards those who forsake their pride and genuinely repent. So I divided Jonah 3 into two sections for us because the first half of, uh, of the story in Jonah 3 emphasizes the word of the Lord, while the second half focuses on the Ninevites' response to the word of the Lord, and finally, at the very end, the Lord's response then to them. And that's where I get my sermon title from, Turn, 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 also with help from the birds who released that song in 1965, uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. We will see how the, the king turns and calls for his people then to turn. And we'll then see that they did turn. And finally, we'll see how the Lord turned as well. So those, those turns are the three parts of our passage then this morning. The first there in verse 6, the king who shows true leadership. The king who shows true leadership, his turn. Again, chapter 3 begins... 
uh, with the word of the Lord coming to the prophet Jonah after the Lord saved him from drowning at sea, commanding him to go to that great city of Nineveh and call out against it. And this time Jonah goes. Uh, And he calls out against the city, warning them of the coming destruction that God will send upon them because of their wickedness. And verse 5 tells us, all the people believed God and called for a fast and put on sackcloth to mourn and grieve over their sin that God's judgment was upon them. And verses 6 through 9 tells us the background for how the people's repentance came about. It was not just this spontaneous fast that happened. It was a fast that was ordered from the top down. That was ordered from the king. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Uh, the king heard the word of God that Jonah preached as well. We are not told if Jonah was given an audience with the king, and so he heard it uh, personally from Jonah. Uh, that is certainly possible. Uh, the king could also have, have, have had the word of, of the Lord um, reported to him as well uh, by others. Uh, the important thing is that what we see the king doing here is in direct response to the word of the Lord. There Again, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And this is truly a rare and remarkable response by the king. First, he removes his royal robe, a royal robe that would have distinguished him as set apart, as as high and above um, all the others, would have distinguished him as the king, the ruler over the city, and he then covers himself with sackcloth or, or burlap, which is a sign of grief and mourning, a sign that he believes a sad tragedy has occurred. And then it says he sat in ashes. He gets low. He humbles himself before God. These are all clear signs of, of deep sorrow, humility, Regret over sin. This week as I pondered what this king did here, I tried to think of an example uh, where a a national government leader or even, even a state government leader ever genuinely and publicly admitted that they had done something wrong. The closest I could come up with was about 25 years ago when our president at the time after making several denials that he had done anything wrong, was finally forced to admit that he did have a relationship with a woman that was inappropriate. But he didn't confess to much else than that. Leaders simply do not admit making mistakes, especially political leaders. They certainly don't admit to any wrongdoing. I mean, just imagine seeing former President Trump taking at least some, just some responsibility for the disaster of January 6, 2021, or ever publicly apologizing for something that he has said or did that was wrong. Or imagine seeing our own president, our current president, President Joe Biden, uh, holding a press conference and actually admitting that 
you know, maybe some of the decisions that he has made as president actually didn't turn out to be legal or as good for the country's economy as he had hoped it would be. I mean, it's just laughable to even think about because it's so unimaginable to see it actually happen. It's just something that, that we don't see. We never see. Political leaders just don't ever admit to being or doing anything wrong. But here, here we have the king of Nineveh, the, the ruler over the city, and all the people publicly humbling himself, identifying himself with the people as being guilty and sinful and justly under the condemnation of God. He isn't making any excuses. He isn't defending himself. He isn't blaming anyone else. When God's word came to the king, it says, he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He did it. He humbled himself. And in so doing, he set the example for his people to follow. He took the lead in what they all ought to do. This was an incredible act of spiritual leadership because he feared and humbled himself before God. As I mentioned before, we we know that Jonah served as the Lord's prophet uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. We see that in 2 Kings uh, 14.25. What the book of Kings reveals to us about the northern kingdom was how throughout their history, they turned away from the Lord, they worshipped idols, and they broke the covenant that the Lord had made with his people. And they were led into those sins primarily by their kings. Their kings led them into those sins. Their kings led them into idolatry. Yet the Lord showed them mercy over and over again, particularly in sending them prophets like Jonah, who spoke the word of the Lord to the kings, calling for them to repent, warning them of judgment and disaster if they refused to listen, and the kings overwhelmingly refused to listen. They instead hardened their hearts against the word of the Lord, or they did as King Ahab often did. They blamed the prophets for the judgment that fell on them because of their idolatry. They're the troublers of Israel. They're the ones that are causing all this problem. But not this king. Not the king of Nineveh. This king stands in stark contrast to the kings of Israel and Judah. When they heard the word of the Lord, they so often refuse to listen. When he hears the word of the Lord, he humbles himself and repents. He knew his nation had done evil. He knew his people were in great trouble with God. And he took action. He led the way in repentance. He humbled himself before God Almighty. This king also, of course, stands in stark contrast to our own national leaders, doesn't he? Consider the destruction, the violence, the terrible conditions that have been brought about by our own nation legally allowing the killing of unborn children for over 50 years. 50 years. Or consider the condition of so many of our inner cities due to the welfare program, uh, programs that subsidize fatherlessness. 
providing more financial gain for mothers to remain unmarried. What terrible effects decades of fatherlessness have had on kids and young men and women. Will we ever see government leaders who have or who are promoting such policies humble themselves before the word of the Lord and confess to how wrong they were for promoting or at least for not standing up against abortion or welfare policies that encourage fatherlessness. We see here in Jonah 3 that it can happen. It has happened. But we have yet to see it happen with our leaders. True leaders confess to wrongdoing and they repent. And in so doing, they provide an example for others to follow. Secondly, we see the genuine repentance before a holy God of the people. Verses 7 through 9. The king not only repents himself, but he also calls for all those in the city to also humble themselves before God, even their livestock. Verses 7 through 9. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Again, we already heard in verse 5 that uh, this had happened, and now we're being shown how it came about. Uh, the king issued this proclamation uh, along with his other leaders that all the people, from the greatest of them to the least of them, from the wealthy and the rich to the slaves in the city, from uh, grandparents and parents to little children, even the livestock must fast and take the posture of sorrow and grief to display their humility and their repentance before God. Let's note that Jonah did not give them this instruction at all. In the word that Jonah declared to them, he did not say, look, if you repent, if you do all of this to show how sorry you are for your sins, God will have mercy on you. Jonah doesn't say that. Remember, God's word for Nineveh was simply a word of judgment. It was, it was a hard message, difficult for them to hear about how they had been evil and their wickedness had gotten God's attention. And so, therefore, his wrath was about to fall upon them and overturn the city. Yet 40 days, Jonah says, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so now this is their response they repent. They forsake their pride. They humble themselves and repent. Why does the king call for the animals to take part in the fast and to have sackcloth put on them? Well, scholars love to debate this. They love to speculate about why the animals are here included. The only answers that, that seem to make sense to me uh, are that, that, that first, if the city would be destroyed, well, then it would definitely affect the livestock as well, they would suffer too. 
And so that kind of points to the reality that our sin always affects more than just ourselves. Young people, hear this. Never believe the lie that our society and our enemy likes to tell that no one else will be hurt by your own personal actions. No one else will be hurt by your own personal sinful behavior. Our sin always affects others. It does harm to not only ourselves, but also to others, those those we love, those closest to us, to our families, to our communities, and even to animals. They suffer for it as well. Therefore, since the animals would suffer from God's judgment too, they then take part in this fast. That's possible. The second reason, which uh, might be more accurate, is that these Ninevites were pagans. They're pagans. They didn't exactly know what was the best way to do this. So why not include the animals? Why not throw sackcloth on them too? Why not keep food away from them as well? Why not make them a part of this public humiliation before God? Maybe that will help as well. But the key message, though, the key statement is in verse 8, last part of verse 8, where the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That is the definition of repentance. To turn around, to turn away from. You're doing something wrong, and so you you turn away from it, and you stop doing it. Your life is moving in a direction away from God and away from his word, and so you turn around. You, You forsake that way, and you begin moving towards God, humbling yourself under his word, following his commands, following his directions. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They also knew that this was their only hope of salvation. That if they were going to survive, that they had to make peace with God. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word of the Lord said 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, which could have meant that the Lord would raise up a stronger, more powerful nation to lay siege and destroy their city. We see the Lord do that often in the Old Testament, in the the book of Judges, as well as in the history of Israel, raising up other nations to bring his judgment upon his people. And yet, uh, the king doesn't order his people to strengthen their defenses. If their city is going to be overthrown, let's strengthen our defenses here. That's, That's what we can do about this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't draft more young men to serve in their army. He, he, he doesn't attempt to build up their city wall higher and stronger. He doesn't command the people to store up provisions so that they could survive the siege. No, he knew that their great need was to be reconciled to God. He knew that it was with God that they had to deal. They needed to be at peace with God. And so the first step towards being at peace with God was to repent, to humble themselves before him. And that is the same 
for each of you as well. Each of you must repent and seek to be at peace with God. You must turn around. Each of us from the from when we were born, has lived our life in opposition to God. We have, we, have, we have just done what we wanted to do. We make our own choices based on what we want to do. We do what feels right to us. We have not cared about whether or not God says that something is right or wrong. Ultimately, we have made our decisions based on whether or not we want to do it. That's what we've done. That's how the great majority of people live, and it's been a disaster. We've hurt others, we've hurt ourselves, and worst of all, we are under God's condemnation and will suffer his wrath in hell for living the way that we've wanted to live rather than how God has wanted us to live. But repentance comes, repentance happens when we finally come to a point when we say to God, as Jesus said to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will be done. We have to come to that point when that is our desire. When we recognize that doing whatever we want leads us to disaster. And so we humble ourselves before God. We, we agree with God that our attitude and our actions were wrong, misguided, evil, wicked. And we say, not what I want, but what you want. Help me, God, to live how you want me to live. So has repentance happened for you? Have you come to, to, to the realization, like the king of Nineveh, that your selfishness, your pride, your disregard for God and his word has offended him and you are under his condemnation? Have you come to the point where you, you can say to the Lord, not what I want, but what you want. I will treat others how you want me to treat them. I will, I will think and talk about others how you want me to think and talk about them. I will live in the way that you want me to live. That is what repentance is. It's not something that you can do without God. It's not something you can do on your own. But if that is where you are, if that is your desire, then God is already at work in your heart, and that is an incredible blessing. For you need his help. You need his grace. You need him to transform your heart and make you someone who wants to do what he wants you to do. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, we see once again salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 9, the king, in his proclamation, says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That, that's the concluding line from Jonah's prayer back in chapter 2, verse 9. 
It's the lesson that he learned while he was in the belly of the fish. And it's also what the king understood, as well as what the captain of the boat uh, that Jonah was on earlier also understood. If you want to look back there at chapter 1 and verse 6, there the captain is, is uh, coming to Jonah, waking him up. Says, the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. And then he says, Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king leaves it in God's hands. He, he's not assured that God will turn away from destroying Nineveh. God would still be just and right if he did uh, uh, follow through with his condemnation here. But the king knows that their only hope is to seek to be at peace with God Almighty, and so they repent. They turn. They throw themselves on the mercy of God, and what they realize, what they come to know, is what so many of us here in this room as believers have come to know, is that God is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He is a merciful God. So God sees what they do. He sees their sorrow. He sees their repentance over their sin. And God turned. Literally, it says God repented. He repented of the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And in so doing, God was just showing his faithfulness to his word. He was showing his faithfulness to his character. For if you want to look with me back at the prophet Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah, one of the, one of the prophets, um, that God sends to his people, sends to Judah, the southern kingdom. He has this to say, Jonah 18, verses 7 and 8. This is the word of the Lord that uh, Jeremiah proclaims. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's what we see happen to Nineveh in the book of Jonah. The Lord is sovereign. He is free. He has also said in Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is, God decides who he will be gracious and merciful to. We don't decide that. He is sovereign over salvation, not us. We, we, we can't force his hand. He, he doesn't owe mercy or salvation to anyone. Again, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may, we may not perish. They deserve to be condemned, and, and so do we. If, if God saves anyone, it is purely out of his grace and mercy. We can never earn it, nor can we 
deserve it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The story of Jonah proves this to be the case by just asking the question, why Nineveh? Have you thought about that? Why Nineveh? Why, why this city? Why these people? There are many other cities who are wicked and evil as well. But God doesn't send Jonah to them. God just sends Jonah to proclaim his word to Nineveh. Why Nineveh and, and not any of the other cities? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And God is consistently merciful to those who repent and trust in his grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So this story here serves as a rebuke then to the people of Israel in Jonah's day who didn't fear the Lord, who rejected his warnings, who were too proud to repent. The word of the Lord comes to Nineveh and they repent immediately. The word of the Lord had been heard by the kings of Israel by the people of Israel, but they overwhelmingly refused to listen. Jesus spoke about their reluctance to repent in the Gospels. In, in, in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem, over his people. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. They trusted in, in their foreign gods or they trusted in their own supposed righteousness and they didn't turn and seek the Lord's mercy. The Lord even sent them his son to proclaim his word to them, to call them to repent. That was his, that was his primary uh, uh, message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they end up destroying him. They end up killing him. They rejected God. And so God judged them. But the Ninevites were not destroyed. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. They didn't know the Lord like we do, they didn't know the Lord like we know the Lord. By God's grace, we know that the Lord has provided a way for us to be saved. By God's grace, we know that, that the God that we repent to, the God that they repented to, is one who gave his own son in order to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. We know that the God whom we repent to is a God that willingly laid down his life for us, suffering God's wrath for our sins in our place so that we could be spared God's wrath. You see, God is just. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. So that is why Jesus Christ, his son, took the punishment for our sins, for our guilt, upon himself on that cross. And then God raised him from the dead so that all who put their hope for forgiveness and righteousness in him will be given mercy. We will be given grace. So brothers and sisters, 
knowing this amazing God, knowing that he really is our Savior, should transform our hearts and lead us to repent daily, to seek to humble ourselves before him daily, to make sure that we are right with him daily. Each of you this morning has been given great hope. I want you to know that. You've been given great hope. Each of you has been given incredible mercy, for you have been given time. You've been given time. You've been given the opportunity to repent, to seek reconciliation with God, maybe to seek reconciliation with another believer, to humble yourself before God. You have time. But we don't know how much time you have. It could be 40 days, like the people of Nineveh had, or it could be four days. Only God knows. The key thing for you this morning is that you have time now. And remember the line, the great line from Augustine. God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow your procrastination. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and I pray, Lord, that we are humbled. I pray, Lord, that we realize and see our great need to be made right with you. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to follow the example of the king of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh to all humble ourselves before you, confessing our sin and trusting in the gracious provision you have made for us in Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, may our hearts willingly call out to you, not what I want, but what you want. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand now as we close our service. Praising God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walk in his ways. O church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem his people from all their iniquities. Amen.